Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. And we are so excited to be on the podcast today because we have a brand new law to talk about. This is the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, more commonly referred to these uh, today as the COVID relief bill. Um, so that was literally just signed into law today or will be signed in shortly. It's over 5,500 pages long. So we are really uh, doing our best to unpack what, what's in there, but we're literally learning as we listen to each other today. Uh, so this will be fun, but we're gonna try to unpack a couple of very important things for employers and for individuals as well. Um, we're gonna cover um, the uh, issues related to FSAs and DCAP carryovers, some tax credits on the FFCRA and the employee retention. And we're gonna talk about surprise billing and we're gonna get into the PPP um, issues and unemployment as well. So maybe even more than that. So let's start, uh, Suzanne, with the most relevant topic probably for our employers, at least from a compliance perspective, and that's the FSA, uh, Dependent Care Flexibility. Right. And and before I start with that, I will say, as you said, it's, I mean, it is almost 5,600 pages long. So we're really only hitting things at a high level. It, it literally stopped the printing press. They had a, a difficult time getting this out. And so um, we we are only able to hit on some of these topics at a high level. But in regards to the FSA, it allows taxpayers to roll over unused amounts in their health and dependent care FSAs from 2020 to 2021, and then from 2021 to 2022. So this is important because we certainly saw during the pandemic that individuals stayed home. They didn't go get the medical care that they would have traditionally. They also certainly didn't use their child care providers. And so they had money and funds left over in their FSA accounts and their dependent care FSAs. Um, and so it's welcome relief. They can now um, use these funds instead of having to forfeit them. And it also permits employers to allow employees to make a 2021 mid-year prospective change in contribution amount. So what, any thoughts on that, Chase? Yeah, this is uh, very welcome relief, I think, for employers. I think lots of people have been asking for this. So in that way, we kind of hoped it had come sooner, but this is good news. And um, it's important to know it's not mandatory. Employers can choose whether to allow this flexibility, but it really provides a lot of flexibility for employees to be able to spend down those accounts. It works basically like a carryover, um, but it just allows employees to get access to the money they haven't been able to use, perhaps, uh, depending on the situation, obviously. The other big question is plan amendments, and just know that you have time to do that. Right. The plan amendments don't have to be done immediately, and you, you can work towards that later. The most important thing now is if you choose to do this as an employer, notify employees and then operate the plan as if you know, you're consistent with how you've chosen to do that. And then the plan amendments can come later. Right. And on that note, as we as we um, talk about these various things at a high level, just know that we're also pushing out information through our compliance corner. We'll be doing so through webinars and other types of, of uh, information through um, distribution. And so just know that we'll provide details on our website as well. So uh, watch for more information. This is, again, at a high level. 
Right, exactly. We'll get more into this. We'll have probably some more webinars and through our, our compliance corner, as you're saying. Let's turn to what individuals are hearing most about and probably are most interested in at an individual level. And that is the unemployment insurance and the stimulus checks. Uh, right. Those. Sure. So, so again, we talk about this amount of, of dollars. It's just mind boggling, but there's $120 billion in unemployment insurance. Uh, another 166 billion in economic impact payments. And so what does that mean? So we'll start with the unemployment insurance. The prior federal unemployment insurance bump expired in July. So this bill provides an additional $300 per week for all the workers receiving unemployment benefits for 11 weeks starting December 27th, and it goes through March 14th, 2021. So this is very helpful because we've certainly seen workers remain unemployed during the pandemic. And Although we hope to see this turnaround uh, next year with the vaccine, uh, we still have some dire situations today. So this includes the self-employed, the gig workers, the contract workers via an extension of the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. That's the PUA program, but it also applies to the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation Program. That's the PEUC. So again, it provides additional weeks of funding, of federal funding of an unemployment benefits to individuals who have exhausted their state benefits. So they're no longer eligible. So now they have 50 weeks of combined state and PUA or PEUC benefits. Now, I will say one of the sticking points of continuing unemployment uh, benefits has been that employers have been concerned that individual would refuse to come back to work when they got paid um, this, these additional amounts under the bill. The states must provide a suitable method for employers to notify the state when an individual refuses to work or accept an offer of work when they don't have a good cause. So that seems to try to balance out the concerns of the employees or former employees and employers. Yeah, so that sounds like some good news there. Um, let's turn to the stimulus checks. I believe these are referred to in the law as economic impact payments. Tell us about right. Yeah, so these are those those are the, the stimulus checks, so the direct payment of $600 for individuals making up to $75,000 per year. 1200 for couples making up to 150,000 per year and $600 payment for each child dependent under 18 years of age. So that means if you have a family of 4, you would receive $2400 in direct payments. So that's a welcome news for a lot of people. We should begin to see these payments roll out within the next couple of weeks after this bill is has been passed and we've heard through the grapevine that probably those whose banking information is already with the IRS will will begin to see these Payments first. I, I I can't confirm that, but that's uh, that makes logical sense. There's also some additional funds that are allotted for emergency federal rental assistance program. This is the first type of this program. We won't go into detail here, but I did want to mention it because it could be very impactful for some people. These funds will actually be distributed through state and local governments, um, and they're available for families that who are impacted by COVID that are struggling to make rent, and they start to see their past due rent payments compounding on itself. So families that qualify for these payments can use it to pay rent that's past due or pay for future rent payments. And they can also use it to pay utility and energy bills to keep it from being, you know, their utilities from being shut off. So welcome news, um, you know, more information out uh, will be available. We're not going to dig into that here. Yeah, definitely some welcome news for those in, in those situations. One quick thing before we turn to businesses directly there was nothing in this bill relating to COBRA subsidies, right? For those that have lost their jobs and lost their health insurance. We thought maybe that would be part of this, but it's not, correct? 
uh, as far as we know, and again, we're still, you know, unpacking this. We have not seen mm-hmm. anything so far to indicate that COBRA stimulus uh, was provided within this bill. So we were hoping to see that it, it was, doesn't seem to be included. Um, maybe it'll still be included in some future bill. Okay, so let's talk about a few of the tax credits that are in this bill or extensions of tax credits. Let's start with the employee retention tax credit. What What is in there on this, Suzanne? Right. So the bill improves that employee retention tax credit previously available under the CARES Act, and it only applied to wages that were paid between March 12th and January 1st of 2021. Now that credit has been extended through July 1st of 2021, and uh, it's been improved. So it was equal to 50% of qualified wages. It's now been bumped up to 70% of qualified wages. Um, and it can be used in conjunction with the PPP funds. So one other adjustment to this credit that's important is it, it was limited of 10000 per employee in the aggregate. Now they've made it 10000 per employee per quarter. The other tax credit that has been extended here in the law that's important is the FFCRA credits, tax credits. This relates to the emergency paid sick leave and the emergency FMLA leave that's now paid under the FFCRA. Remember, the FFCRA only applies to employers with fewer than 500 employees. But the new law here allows uh, employers, it doesn't require them, but it allows them to extend the time they can offer that EPSL or EFMLA to employees to March 31st, 2021. This was going to end on December 31st, 2020. So this is an important extension. And then if the employer chooses to do that, they can apply for the tax credits uh, for that leave granted under the extension. The law does not appear to provide any additional leave itself. So this would be if if an employee had not previously taken one of these leaves, now takes it, then the employer can go ahead and take the tax credit for that. Tax credits are really important because that helps employers to not have to come out of pocket for this leave and allows them to claim the tax credit. They do that through their employment tax returns each quarter. Um, But it, this you know, helps extend that for employers and hopefully employers will uh, jump on that bandwagon and sort of allow employees that are in these tough spots and situations into, into 2021. Again, that's through March 31st of 2021. Right, and I will mention, since we're throwing out so many acronyms and dates, uh, again, just a reminder, we will have this information available on our website. Let's talk about the uh, PPP, another acronym, the Paycheck Protection Program understand that there's uh, more money allotted and some amendments to that. Yeah, well, first and and probably most notably, the bill reversed um, prior IRS guidance so that now uh, it affirmatively affirmatively permits businesses to deduct from gross income for given business expenses under the PPP. So previously you weren't allowed to do that, now you are. It also expanded the allowable uses for those PPP funds. I know that was certainly one of the complaints that we heard about the PPP program was the limited use for the funds. But now they can also be used and forgiven um, for other expenditures. So I'll, I'll just hit on these somewhat highly. But number one is covered operating expenses. And those include things like uh, software, cloud computing services, processing payment or tracking of payroll expenses, human resources, accounting Um, things of that nature. Also includes covered property damage costs. And this is damage or vandalism or looting that was due to the public disturbances that occurred in 2020. Um, Also covered supplier costs. So that's expenditures to suppliers for goods that are essential to the operation of the entity at the time the expenditure is made. 
also covered worker protection expenditures? I know we've had various questions on whether PPE uh, equipment could be covered, and this is certainly going to be welcome news. But this also includes not only um, expenditures for PPE, but also other, you know, other changes that had to be made for things like drive-through windows, air pressure ventilation or filtration systems, physical barriers. I know we've seen a lot of businesses put up those plastic barriers. So things like that are now um, available for funds from the PPP program. And then uh, lastly, I wanted to mention that the definition of covered period for forgiveness purposes has now been changed so that it is at the a selection of the PPP recipient uh, between eight weeks and 24 weeks after loan origination. Uh, so that, again, is welcome news for the recipients that there's a longer time in which they can use funds that will be forgiven. Yeah, that will definitely be welcome news. What about the actual forgiveness amount? Were there any changes to that? The forgiveness amount, there, there weren't changes, but in terms of, of, of the availability of the forgiveness, they said that um, for loans that are uh, under 150000 there is going to be somewhat of a deemed forgiveness if the borrower submits a one-page signed certification that's going to be designed by the SBA um, to the lender. And it will describe, for example, the number of employees the borrower retained because of the loan, uh, the estimated part of the loan that was spent on payroll costs and other you know, and other information. So we, we don't have full clarification on what this looks like now, but it's the idea is that it's going to make the forgiveness of the loan for loans 150000 or less much easier. It did clarify, I know we, we got some questions on whether payroll cost includes things like uh, group life, disability, vision, dental, and they did clarify that those would be uh, considered payroll costs for this purpose. I understand there's also a second round of the PPP program. Is that correct? So this is where we're going to get into some new acronyms. Yes. So the, the legislation created a new SBA program It's that uh, we'll, we'll refer to as the second draw PPP. So the SDPPP, <laughs> try to keep that straight. Uh, but these loans have their own eligibility requirements, uh, maximum loan amounts, which are generally capped at $2 million, and other provisions. But it really draws heavily on that first round PPP program in terms of just its general structure and its definition. I will say it's only available to entities that received that first round PPP loan if, you know, prior to disbursement of this second draw, they use that full amount completely and, and so that they were in continued need of um, some PPP funding. It's also only available to businesses with fewer than 300 employees that can demonstrate a significant quarter over quarter reduction in gross receipts between 2019 and 2020. They don't, again, we don't have information right now what that looks like more information to come. As you said, we'll continue to watch as additional guidance is released on this and we'll, we'll probably have some webinars coming up early in the year next year so we can uh, digest this all. Let's turn our attention to something else that's big in this and, and that is surprise medical billing because that's an issue that impacts both plans and participants in group health plans, right? So start, can you start us again with a brief review of what we mean when we say surprise medical billing? Yeah, you know, it seems like we've been working on this forever. And so it's really nice to see it act, something actually come through. But surprise medical bills are those bills that come from out-of-network providers in typically three situations. So you go in for emergency care at an out-of-network facility. You go in for non-emergency services at an in-network facility. But then you end up having some, um, some care provided by an out-of-network provider. So that's generally going to be 
like a radiologist, an anesthesiologist, a pathologist, a hospitalist. So those types of doctors that the patient doesn't typically choose and they don't really have a, you know, a choice in it. And so they're in the hospital, they think they're an in-network and then they end up being, you know, having some providers take take care of them that are out of network and they get a hefty bill at the end because their plan hasn't negotiated rates with these providers. So the bill, um, again, has been in the work for some time because there's been this point of negotiation between the two sides, between the plans and the providers. The providers have wanted to have um, disputed payments resolved through an arbitration process, whereas plans really wanted it, you know, more certainty and have a benchmark rate. And so there's been this discussion on how to really resolve when there has been a dispute. It seems like the legislation took a middle ground approach. So the surprise billing ban would hold patients harmless from surprise medical bills, um, including like air ambulance providers, I think is an important one that we hear about. It ensures that they are responsible only for in-network cost-sharing amounts in both emergency situations and those non-emergency situations where they don't have the ability to choose the provider. And then the plans, on the other hand, will resolve the payment disputes as we've just, you know, as we'll, as we'll outline and talk about more. Okay, so walk me through the process here, Suzanne, because this is very confusing, first of all, for, for you know, individuals who are going through this process, but I, I really want to understand and try and explain how this works. Can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, so a provider will submit an invoice. So an individual goes in, let's say again, they've gone into an network hospital, they've had surgery, they've they've had their anesthesiologist, the radiologist, all were out of network. Um, they submit a, an invoice to the plan or insurer for payment. And then within 30 days after that receipt, the plan or, or insurer must send this initial payment back to the provider, or they deny it, of course, if it's something that's not covered. Um, the amount of the payment that they send back must be equal to what's called a qualifying payment amount. And that is going to be the median, which is the middle price of the payments that the plan or the insurer has contracted to make for the same type of surface in that same geographic area to in-network providers. So they look at their, their contracted rates in for that service in that area, then they choose the median price that's called the qualifying payment amount, and they send that back to the provider. And then within 30 days after that payment's been made, the provider can either accept it or deny it. If they deny it, then they initiate this negotiation process and they have a bit of time to negotiate. And then there's this 30-day period of when they are negotiating. And within four days after the end of that, if they haven't come to a resolution, either party can initiate what's called an independent dispute resolution. We'll call it IDR, um, a process by submitting... Yeah, another acronym <laughs> by submitting sure. a notice both to the other party and to HHS, which is interesting. So HHS is going to be in the middle of this. So the parties then will select an IDR entity, which is really like the arbitrator. And if they can't agree on that, then they turn to HHS and they'll pick one for them. Each party will submit what they agree to for payment to the IDR entity um, within 10 days. And in the case of the pro provider, if they say that qualifying payment amount was not sufficient, they must submit information as to why any deviations from that qualifying payment are warranted. Um, and then the IDR entity will make a determination of the payment amount. And, and it, you know, it's really what we call baseball style arbitration. I like sports references. So that part is fun. Uh, but a lot of this is going, so this is a lot of back and forth basically between the provider and the plan or the carrier. Uh, I imagine the administrator for a self-insured plan would sort of be the carrier or the, the go-between. Um, but what are the what are the factors that the IDR entity will consider when determining the payment amount? Because that's a big well, part of it. 
Right. So they certainly, they kind of start with the idea of this qualifying payment amount. And so that's certainly one of the factors. And then um, if they want to, if the provider wants them to deviate from that, they need to put forth information that's outlined in the law. And that could include things like the level of training, the experience of the provider uh, or the provider's facilities, market share in the geographic area, the acuity of the individual receiving the service and the complexity of providing services to this patient, I can imagine would be a big one. Um, demonstrated by demonstration by the parties that they engaged in good faith efforts to enter into a network agreement. Interestingly, and I think this is very interesting, it bars the IDR entity from considering the provider's bill charges. So what we refer to as usual and customary UNC is not part of this process. Interesting. Um, okay, so back to determining the amount the plan will pay for the ancillary providers. Aren't there states that have laws on surprise billing? And if so, which law would apply? It might be a conflict there, right? Right. Yeah. And they do recognize this. And so they say if a state has a law that dictates the amount a plan would owe the provider, then the state law applies. So it's, it's you know, different from when we think of federal preemption. In this case, they're saying state preemption of sorts. So, for example, um, Maryland and Vermont also have what's they've adopted what's called an all payer model agreement. Um, and in those states, if the state has a, a certain amount, that amount, again, would apply. Otherwise, if we don't have a state law, then the process that I mentioned earlier would apply from a federal perspective. Okay. So that's a really good piece of information, <laughs> one that people will be asking about right away, right? What else do we need to know about this law with respect to anything else? So... Um, when I talked about earlier in the process, when I talked about, you know, when they make that payment initially, it's, it's what I refer to as a qualifying payment amount. Again, that's the middle payment for the services paid by the insurer, the plan in the ge geographic areas. Note that they said that self-insured plans are defined as a separate insurance market as are small group and large group fully insured markets. So they're going to look at those defined markets when they're trying to determine the median amount in that area. So I think that that's, uh, you know, something interesting. Also know that when that IDR entity makes a decision, it's final. There's no, you don't appeal it from there. It's done. Also, the same parties cannot start another IDR process within 90 days of a decision that's been made if it refers to the same item or same type of service. Um, so they don't, you know, they don't want them going back to the table within 90 days when you're talking about the same thing. After that, they can. Also, the losing party must pay the IDR cost, and both parties will be assessed a fee, I don't know yet how much that is, by HHS to cover their expenses in administering the program. So again, they're trying to make this back onto the plans and the insurers that and the providers. If they're going to use this process, they're going to, you know, they're going to have to pay to the piggy bank. Right. Something to know for plans is that insurance ID cards will now have to include certain information like in and out of network deductible amounts, out-of-pocket maximums, uh, the plan's telephone number, website contact information. Also, price comparison guidance has to be offered by telephone and made it available on an internet website of the plan or issuer that will enable an enrolled individual to compare the amount of cost sharing for which he or she would be responsible for paying with respect to the furnishing of certain items um, by any provider. So it's really the whole idea is transparency and, and allowing individuals to have access to information and data that they need to make those decisions. Importantly, it also puts onus on the plans to make sure that their provider directories are up to date. So they've got to make sure they're updated at least every 90 days 
respond within a day to an enrollee's questions about a provider's in-network status, and then maintain on a public website a database of all the in-network providers and facilities and a directory of information for each of them. So again, back to the idea of let's give information, let's make it readily available so that individuals can make these types of decisions. In addition, the plans and the providers and the facilities all must make publicly available information about this law and about this process and about the prohibition on balance billing. So uh, all welcome, welcome information, welcome news, something that really needs to be done. Yeah, I think all of this is uh, very helpful. We usually talk about surprise billing and price transparency kind of as two separate topics, but they really do go hand in hand as you've described here, because you've got to you know, to help cut down on the surprise bill that you get in the end, um, you've got to be able to understand the prices up front. So that price transparency really helps also reduce surprise medical bill. But then we also have this additional process that you've described when those surprise bills come up. So I agree with you. I think this is all very helpful um, for, for everybody. Uh, let's um, close pretty much now. We know the package that we've talked about, this new law is obviously much larger than what we discussed today. There's funding for vaccine procurement and distribution, funding for schools and transportation sectors, childcare assistance, broadband funding. There's also a, to close on an employer note, there's an extension for the repayment, employer repayment of student loans for employees. Um, so we'll unpack more of this in the future. Uh, watch for our webinars, our communications, our compliance corner, all at nfp.com. Our latest insights page will obviously be covering this. Anything else you wanted to add there, Suzanne? No, I think there's just more to come. We hit it at a high level, but a lot of good news for um, a lot of people. And so we will, we will thank everyone for joining us today. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us, everybody.